0: Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, the kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we depend on you for every gain this morning, for every increase, for every removal of sins and weights that are in us, that we lay them aside. Lord, we depend on you even to behold the servant of the Lord this morning by faith. It's your right arm. It's your revealed grace, Lord, to us. If we are in Christ, Lord, we have eyes to see, and then we want to worship. We want to worship him this morning. As we come to your word and as we come to the table, we want to behold Christ, the only means of our cleansing, the only means of our forgiveness of sins before you. But he is that. He is the truth. I pray that we would see him as that, and and you'd be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. In our day, reality, what is real, what is true, is not just a given anymore. The world is not a simple place these days. There's no shortages, in fact, of ideas about what reality itself is. We have sets that you can put in front of your eyes that give you a virtual reality. Indeed gaining in popularity in these days amongst intellectuals and especially within the technology world and and the philosophy that's coming out of that world is a gaining influence that we're all living in some sort of a simulation. That there is no reality; that this is just some sort of a simulation; that somebody is working, or somebody has worked; that somebody, not necessarily being God, some philosophical notions also say that reality is merely what we make of it. And this is this is everywhere in our society these days. Y- you are what you think you are uh, is gaining so much popularity that it is going to be uh, probably forced on you to agree with what somebody thinks of themselves as, that if you don't agree with them that that's what they are, you might face jail time, you might face fines in the very near future. Reality is what we merely make of it, they say. Others say reality is just our experience. Whatever we experience, that's what is, and that's all that there is. Some say it's merely in material things. That's what matters, in fact, is matter. To the materialists and to all of these previous things, the supernatural cannot hold the key to reality because, as they would assume, there is no such thing as supernatural truth. There is no such thing as the supernatural. Yet when we come to Scripture, you and I, this morning are sitting ourselves before the word of God which claims to be supernaturally given to us by God who is himself beyond what is natural. He is not created. Everything else besides him is created. The very truth about what we believe about God demands that we believe in what is supernatural. And we come to A prophecy again this morning as we did last month before we partook of the Lord's table a prophecy that was given 700 years before it was fulfilled in detail it is given it's given in such detail that as I mentioned last time Thomas Manton the the Puritan said that this is not so much a prophecy as it is a gospel What we are reading in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, all the way to the end of chapter 53, is so clear concerning the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so clear a prophecy, a supernatural revelation given by God preceding the fulfillment of it. It is so clear that it could be called history, is what Thomas Manton meant Last time we saw when we came to this prophecy, we saw the servant's threefold exaltation. That is, he was exalted to the superlative degree, to the exaltation that could only be rightly given to God. See that in verse 13 of chapter 52. And yet we're astonished in the very next verse to see what this exalted one becomes. He becomes something, as it were, by those who looked at him of a horror. It said there in verse fourteen, as many were astonished, or appalled, or stricken with horror at his appearance, because it was so marred beyond human semblance. He was so disfigured that Alec Montier said it's rightly understood that these stopped in horror, saying to themselves, not is this the servant that was exalted, but is this human? That's how disfigured he was. Beyond that, the children of mankind. He did not look to be human. And where we come to this morning is just one phrase in the next verse, verse 15. In this way are so... In this way of his disfigurement, in this way of his suffering, in this way of the onlookers looking at him in disgust and in horror, in that way, it says, he will sprinkle many nations. The Hebrew word nazah is rendered here, sprinkle. And this is a well-attested word in the Old Testament. Twenty times the word is rendered, sprinkled, or sprinkles, or "sprinkle." as it is rendered here and the word comes from the way in which either blood or oil or water was applied for the act of purification for the cleansing of sin for the priests as they went to perform their ceremonial duties before God for the sake of the people it was for the people's cleansing as we'll see in an example here of the day of atonement it was for the cleansing of the presence of leprosy if Leprosy was found in the camp. It was for the cleansing or the signification that the the leprosy was cleansed or removed from the people. And even the furniture of the tabernacle is indeed, as we'll see in Hebrews, almost everything was purified by the sprinkling of blood in those religious or ceremonial duties. An example of this can be found in Leviticus chapter 16, one of many examples of the way that this sprinkling was done. Leviticus 16 records for us how the day of atonement was to be set forth, how it was to be observed. It was such a holy ordinance that the priests themselves first had to be purified they first had to be consecrated before they could offer up service on behalf of the people they themselves who were sinners had to be cleansed and here's a record of it in verse 11 of chapter 16 of Leviticus through verse 14 Aaron shall present the bull Aaron is the high priest as a sin offering for himself do you hear that he himself needed to be cleansed of his sins And shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. And two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil, inside the veil of this most holy place. And put the incense of the fire before the Lord and the cloud of the incense. So that it may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony. So that he does not die. You see how holy of a place this was that the high priest had to bring this covering, this smoke, this incense, which would, as it were, symbolically veil his presence there. He is an outsider not allowed into this holy place. And so being even in the place, he had to bring a smoke and he had to bring a smell that would cover his appearance and his smell in this place. But that's not all he had to do. Verse 14, he shall take some of the blood of the bull. That is what he sacrificed for his own sin. And he shall sprinkle it. There's the same word that we see in our text. With his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and on the front of the mercy seat shall he sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And in this way, His sin was atoned for before God. And then we read in verse 15, after doing that for his own sin, then for the people's sin in verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. We can see from just these examples that sprinkle here denotes the way in which something is applied, that which purifies. This, I believe, is the meaning of sprinkle in our text. There are some who object and say sprinkle here is rather used in the way that it's used, say, in Ezekiel or Malachi, where it is used as a representation of the word that is spoken And that can be a very true meaning of this idea of sprinkle. In fact, that's the way the new covenant will come to us. Through the word, the sprinkling of the word of God. The preaching of the word of God. And there may be a sense where that too is in the mind of the prophet here as he speaks about the sprinkling. But I think that sprinkle here as it relates to the suffering in verse 14 has to do with that which purifies that which purifies indeed from sin. And here he sprinkles many nations, and that is a fact that should not be overlooked by us. The sprinkling of many nations regards the Gentiles. What does the servant sprinkle is a big question. You see, what I, what I read and what we saw in the example there in Leviticus was the priest, Aaron, the high priest, sprinkling the blood of the bull the blood of the goat for the atonement but there's no mention in the text what object is sprinkled in every other case in the old testament where the word sprinkle is translated the object is made clear that is sprinkled namely blood or water or oil here none of this is made explicitly clear and maybe there is a reason for that maybe it's just the suffering of the servant that we need to see here maybe it's just his suffering that we need to understand is that results in the sprink- that which would, what which results in the sprinkling of the nations the purifying of the heathen and the context gives us a help that here indeed that is what is being taught us because in chapter 53 verse 11 which I've said as chapter 52 begins the servant psalm chapter 3 53 at the end sort of is an inclusive or it sort of encloses what the beginning references and so it sort of is its own commentary and so in verse 11 we see that out of the anguish of his soul the servant he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant may be make many to be accounted righteous. Do you see that? And he shall bear their iniquities. This is indeed what purification always symbolizes in the Old Testament. The need to have sin or that which uh, destroys or decays or that which obscures righteousness before God removed purification always symbolizes the purification from sin and its effects and this is the fulfillment of the servant psalm in isaiah 49 55 through 8 this is the third servant psalm or that i'm sorry the second servant psalm he says there in verse 6 in chapter 49 of isaiah it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, he says, I will make you as a, for you as a light of the nations. Again, we see here that the servant that sprinkles the nation here is prophesied that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What is the prophesying of here? What is the purpose of the purification? It is for the salvation of the peoples. And for the peoples to be saved, they have to have their sins covered. They have to be cleansed. The apex of redemptive history, the sprinkling of many nations, refers to two profound features of God's redemptive plan fulfilled in this one act of the suffering servant. Namely, in Christ's death, in his substitutionary atonement, his death for the world first by it christ would remove every other form of sprinkling you see what came before christ when he came 700 years after this prophecy would no longer be useful all the sprinkling of blood of bulls and goats, all the sprinkling of oil, all the sprinkling of water in those ceremonial acts prescribed by God to Moses for his people would be done away with by this act, by his suffering. And second, he himself then became, becomes for sinners the sole means of purification for sin, not merely for the Jews but also for the Gentiles. Go to chapter 9 in Hebrews, if you would. Hebrews chapter 9. I think this speaks to exactly what the prophecy is speaking to regarding the suffering of Christ and the sprinkling of himself for our purification. Hebrews 9, 11 through 24, I'll read. We could read the whole chapter because it really is all appropriate. When Christ appeared, listen to who he is, he's is the high priest. Of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, and this is so important that we understand, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, and that is to contrast what came before with Moses. That that's to contrast what happened that we read there in Leviticus. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats, of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And here's what he accomplished, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls or goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, That's a problem. That's why we needed the purification. The defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purifying of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. You see that? Here's what is happening in Isaiah 53. The servant, this high and exalted one, to the superlative degree, this exalted one to the point of deity humbles himself. And him, through his own blood, through his own laying of himself down, offers himself without blemish to God purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That means to worship in truth. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise in eternal inheritance since, and this is important, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Since a death, a singular death, you see how No more are there multiple deaths serving the sins that we commit. No more that is passed away. One singular suffering has happened that has removed our transgression, our law-breaking before God. For where a will is involved, the death of one who has made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death Since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in, listen to this, everything was needed to be sprinkled for the covenant to be established. He's talked already about Christ establishing a better covenant now, and in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, all the vessels that is used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, listen to what he calls those things. Thus, it was necessary for the copy for the copies of the heavenly things all those things of the first covenant were merely copies they were merely shadows as paul calls them in colossians they were merely teaching instructions they were merely object lessons to tell us the truth what is the truth But the heavenly things, that's the truth. Those things, those copies, were to give way to what is true. The heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these, were to be purified. For Christ, and here's how that is accomplished. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. When he died, that is not what he did. Which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. But how did he do this? What was it that was not made with hands? It was his worth. When he died, it was his worth, it was his value. Listen to what it said there at the beginning. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places. That is through himself he entered into heaven. When he made satisfaction for our sins, he did it in himself. He is the perfect tabernacle. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfection of all those copies. He is the reality of them in himself. And so when it says that he sprinkles in order to purify is the meaning, this is reality, beloved. This is truth. It's not what we see with our eyes. It's what he has accomplished that we behold by faith. That is true. The limitations of the first covenant and the ceremonial rituals was inherent in that they were always only analogous, that is, earthly copies to that which was reality, that is, man's purification of sin before God in heaven, and Christ is that reality. He is the truth. Christ in his suffering fulfilled in reality what those copies pointed towards, namely the removal or purifying of sin by the sprinkling of his own blood when he offered up himself to God, his Father in heaven. Now let this sink in today. What Christ was prophesied to do on our behalf 700 years before he did it, he did. He fulfilled these things. When he suffered for our sins, this then is reality. This then is the truth by which we live, in which we are settled. It gets beneath our experience on this earth. It tells us from the reference point of the creator and the one whom we offend with our sin, who we need, namely Christ Namely, the Exalted One. Why we need Him because we have fallen. We are sinners. And that we need to be purified. And it teaches us, God teaches us, who it is only who can grant our purification. That is only through Christ, through the gospel. And this goes so far beyond what man can figure out for itself. And it goes so far beyond what God has in store even for us. It isn't entered into the heart of man. Into our minds, there's no one who's figured out how much good God has in store for those whom he loves. He's already not spared his son. There's nothing greater than this. There's nothing more true, there's nothing more real than this. You know, there's three onlookers described in Isaiah already, three including chapter 53, verse 1. Chapter 52 says in verse 14, Many were astonished at you, this exalted one. They were horrified. Here's one set of onlookers that look at Christ. And they're horrified to see what he's become, this exalted one. They're horrified to see that he doesn't even resemble them anymore in his suffering. They're astonished at him. But in verse 15, after it says he will sprinkle many nations, we see there another description of onlookers, namely kings. And these shall shut their mouths because of him. This means literally that they will be dumbfounded, the great ones of the world. These kings no doubt refer to Gentiles. It's kings in the plural, those who behold him, who are those of the sovereigns of the peoples of this earth. And they will behold and they will have their mouths shut. How can one so exalted go so low? To the great ones of the earth, they don't do that. And this one is far exalted beyond them, and they see it, and they shut their mouths. They don't know what to say. Some see in this the conversion of Gentile rulers. Maybe it is. Maybe that's exactly what's being spoken of here. For that which has not been told them, they see. You see, this is a surprise to the Gentile nations. They didn't know this was going to happen. And that which they had not heard, they understood. They are dumbfounded, however, because he that was beyond measure exalted is now brought lower than any human being could ever be brought in his suffering. And that's where Christ was brought when he suffered for us. That's what it took for him to sprinkle us, to purify us, was to be brought to our deserving Measure of suffering because of our sin. Taking our place. And then the third onlooker is found in chapter 53. And this is implied of those who don't believe it. Who has believed what he has heard from us. And this is what it comes down to. And all of these onlookers, who's going to believe in this truth? It was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. He's the reality, beloved. When we are to ask the question of what is true, what is real out there, which is dumbfounding the world, the further they get away from the Creator and the further they get away from what is revealed in this Word, the answer comes back to us that it's Jesus Christ who has revealed the truth. He has revealed who God is truly. He has revealed who we need and what we need more than anything in this world. I was I've been sick for 3 weeks now with mono. You know what I don't need more than anything? It's just to feel better. I need forgiveness of my sins. And so do you. This world is after only what it can get for a temporary fix. Because they don't know that there's a reality that transcends this one. Because there's a creator that transcends everything. And he's made us in his image. And the further we run away from him, the less we will know about truth. And the less we'll know about reality. The less we'll know about our need. But praise God, he has not left us without an answer. He has not left us in our sin. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For the last 2,000 years many people have heard of this message of Christ, the suffering servant. Many have believed, many have lived and died with this truth as the truth that lay trusted, this reality as the reality that is true. But everyone else, the one who is a mere admirer, the one who nominally, nominally follows the pragmatist who follows because of what he can gain other than God, the pluralist who adds Jesus, the syncretist who worships him amongst other things and other deities, the denier, the idolater, the hateful, all who live apart from Christ live apart from what is true. They do not live in the truth. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we need to understand that these elements do not foreshadow something yet to come, something far off, or signify something that has yet to happen. They tell us the truth about what has already taken place. They remind us of what Christ has already accomplished in his own body for our sakes, they tell us that if we are in Christ, we have been sprinkled by him, purified by him. That we are new creations in Christ Jesus. The fruit of the vine illustrates that his life's blood was truly poured out for us. The bread illustrates that the reality of his broken body. Both illustrate the way in which he became sin for us him who knew no sin that in him we might have the righteousness of god beloved we look back to the cross when we come to the lord's table the reality the truth of it because through christ's death we have everything to look forward to this is the reality the truth that god has revealed to us in hebrews 12:24 It speaks about Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant, that of which his blood still speaks to this day. Beloved, his blood that has sprinkled his people, his death that has won for us our salvation, will speak through eternity. The question is, do you trust him? Do you believe on this suffering servant? Do you believe that this is the way that God in his wisdom, would confound the wisdom of man and save his people from their sins. Are you here this morning, but you don't or have not believed the word of the Lord concerning Christ? May I say, Christ alone is righteous. He alone died in the place of sinners in order to purify them. But consequently, the scriptures say that he is able to save to the uttermost All who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray for your people that our faith would increase in this day of unbelief. in this day when we see so many falling away, following foolish idols, following the snares of the devil, following ideas and philosophies that are so vain on the face of them but we are running because we are not grounded in the truth. We do not see Christ for who he is. We do not live in the reality of your word. We live in the reality of TV and entertainment and amusement. Father, I pray that we live for the glory of the name of Christ. And that through the partaking, even this morning, by faith in these elements that represent our Lord and his suffering to us, we would be sanctified by the Spirit who dwells in us. For those who are in unbelief here this morning, I pray that they would believe. I pray that the joy of the Lord would become theirs through the knowledge, the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for your merciful strong and revealing arm that you would be gracious to them give them life through Jesus Christ and life more abundantly we pray that you would humble us as we come and and yet humble us with a, a joy that here we are partaking by grace in Christ Lord as he's represented here before us as he died in our place For our salvation, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.